The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. It's Wednesday, March the 1st, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. On Monday, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen announced that they had come to an agreement to resolve the dispute over the Northern Ireland Protocol to the United Kingdom's withdrawal agreement with the European Union. So where do we stand now? And is this the end of this extremely long and very tortuous process for politics in London, Brussels, Belfast and in Dublin? To tease out some of these questions, we're joined by our political editor Pat Leahy, London correspondent Mark Paul and political commentator Sarah Creighton. Hello to you all. Hello, Hugh. How are you doing? Morning, Hugh. We're going to come to the Irish perspectives in a moment, but first, Mark, could you take us through events as they played out in London the other day? The general consensus does seem to be that it was the best 24 hours of Rishi Sunak's premiership so far. Without a doubt it was. I mean, the day look was highly choreographed. I mean, you know, Rishi Sunak is known for being a stickler for detail. So journalists um, um, were invited to apply for accreditation to go down to Windsor for what, you know, everybody knew what was going to happen. I mean, you know, a deal. Um, apparently, now, from talking to some of the negotiators on the deal, they have, um, I suppose, um, rejected the notion that there was a deal sitting on his desk for several weeks waiting for Rishi Sunak to sign, which had been the rumour. They said that people were still working on it until 2 or 3 a.m. the night before. But anyway, on Monday, we arrived down in Windsor. We were all corralled into a hotel across the road from the Windsor Guild Hall. And this is about 40 kilometres west of London. It's uh, Windsor is a town with a big castle, um, um, you know, very closely linked to the royal family, which may have been the point of the whole thing. And then we were marched across the road, um, up the stairs into uh, into the council chamber of the, the Windsor Hill Hall. This is the building where Charles and Camilla got married back in 2005. And at half past three, in swept uh, Rishi Sunak and Ursula von der Leyen, and they announced um, that they had agreed a new agreement called the Windsor Framework, um, which effectively replaces, it's, it's effectively a, a, the new name for the Northern Ireland Protocol. And, uh, and, and Europe um, um, had given ground on, on a lot of uh, important things for Britain. 
the rabbit out of the hat, so to speak, um, is this element called a storm and break, which um, gives the storm and assembly a method for objecting to EU laws that might apply up there. And then um, you know, there were also other well-trailed changes to the protocol, such as um, the operation of green and red lines and, and so on. So all of this all culminated basically in Rishi Sunak attempting to be the prime minister to finally get Brexit done, to put it in British parlance. And, and you're absolutely right, Hugh, it was, um, and without a doubt, the best 24 hours um, of his career because Brexit has bedeviled so many British prime ministers in recent years. And, you know, Rishi Sunak, I suppose there, there was a sense that there might be an enormous backlash from Tory backbenchers and the DUP to this. Um, but so far that hasn't materialised. And the best 24 hours of Rishi Sunak's premiership um, has turned into the best 36 hours and, you know, will soon become the best 48 hours. And however long that goes on without a backlash, he'll absolutely consider himself a winner from all of this. And we're going to dig into a little bit more of the detail of the agreement itself and also the implications perhaps for British politics a little bit later. But just one last thought from you for, uh, first, Mark. As you say, it was very rehearsed, nothing wrong with that, but a lot of play was made of the uh, the way in which Ursula von der Leyen um, addressed him as Dear Rishi. Um, and mm. whether or not that, that indicates a real warmth of friendship and affection, it's a kind of a statement of trust uh, in comparison with the way the relationship has been with his predecessors. Exactly. The relationship with his predecessors, particularly Boris Johnson, but also Theresa May, I mean, there was never any real warmth there. And that lack of personal warmth was always an obstacle in the negotiations. So you're right, she referred to him as Dear Rishi. I mean, at the time when she said that, I was I was sort of scribbling down in my notebook and I, my, my head jerked up in surprise when she said it. Um, and you notice when she was making her address, um, instead of speaking out into the room as he had done, she spoke directly to him across the lecterns and the two of them, um, you know, I suppose, gazed, gazed into each other's eyes without sort of trying to make a Mills and Boone novel out of it. And they spoke directly to each other. And there was a real and genuine warmth there. But it, it also didn't just extend to this, um, I suppose, rapport between Rishi Sunak and Ursula von der Leyen. Um, um, Chris Heaton-Harris um, and also Steve Baker um, um, and James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary, ha- have all been credited with working really, really hard in recent months um, to improve personal relationships. And I suppose these things help deals get over the line. There's a sales pitch element to all of this, Sarah. Rishi Sunak had headed off to Northern Ireland then and was really doing a very hard sell on what a wonderful deal this was for Northern Ireland, what, what, how glowing the future was. In fact, my first question to you, based on what he was saying, is how does it feel to live in the world's most exciting economic zone? <laughs> it's a thrill. It's a thrill every day, what can I say? <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's, it, it's a huge, huge, it was a huge, huge day yesterday. It's very much all... All the ball is now in the DUP's court with respect to the institutions in Northern Ireland. Um, but obviously, you know, I, th- I think the British government are going to proceed ahead of this regardless of what the DUP do. Um, but the interesting thing is that, you know, things like the storm and break will not apply unless the assembly is up and running. Um, and really at the moment, you know, it's, it's, it's unionism is centre stage again. It has been centre stage really for quite a long time, particularly in Northern Ireland, which I think frustrates a lot of nationalists and Republicans up here. Um, and really, that's the big question is about whether unionism is going to accept this um, or whether the DUP specifically are going to accept this. And I suppose the billion dollar question is, how do you anticipate that will play out? What are the different forces at play within unionism then? Well, obviously, I mean, obviously, I think your viewers need to understand, obviously, the DUP don't speak for all unionists, but obviously they speak for quite a considerable number of them. They are the, the largest unionist party. Um, so there's the DUP and then they are looking over their shoulder at the, the TUV, uh, which is led by Jim Allister, who has already come out and said that he doesn't support this deal. And then there's the Ulster Unionist Party, which um, seems to cautiously welcome the deal, though it has questions, but it it, it has continuously opposed the, the, the blockage of Stormont. So the Ulster Unionists will go back into, into Stormont regardless of what this deal says. 
Um, and then you have wider the wider pro-union, unionist community out there. Um, so the major issue is obviously that, you know, for a lot of unionists, this isn't just about the practicalities of the protocol. It's about the constitutional issue. So some unionists think that any application of EU law in Northern Ireland is unacceptable. They see it um, as diminishing Northern Ireland's place in the union. They see it as um, di- making Northern Ireland diverge from Britain, which is unacceptable. They see it as as damaging the consent principle. Um, the Supreme Court has said that that's not correct, but they continue to believe that, that they should have been asked for their consent. Um, now this deal has been done. This is a very good deal. Now I, I think the British government has embellished it a little bit in terms of the practicalities. There's still going to be some checks at the border, but they're dramatically reduced. There's a greater role for Stormont if Stormont does come back. Um, but I think that will certainly help. I'm interested to see what a lot of people think with the deal. The fact that this is a much better deal than anticipated, and you know, I, I think some it's quite clear that some in the DUP, um, particularly want the party to compromise and go back, and others don't. So it was reported this morning that particularly the party's MLAs and the Assembly are quite seem to be more open to taking the deal. Why the the DUP's Westminster MPs do not. Um, so that's a very interesting dynamic, and I really do think it's it the it's a really big moment for Jeffrey Donaldson. Um, and I noticed Peter Robinson came out yesterday and said that unionism needs to consider whether rejecting the agreement would put unionism in a perilous position. Um, I would argue yes, it will. <laughs> it will put unionism in a very, very, very bad position if it does not accept this deal. Um, I don't think they should have boycotted Stormont in the first place. Um, so it's a huge moment for them. I think if they don't take the sale, it's going to be very, very damaging for them. Yeah, I notice. I see Brian Walker on Slipper O'Toole's website saying, and I'm quoting him here, Sunak's concentration on wooing the DUP may represent the high watermark of Westminster's support for Northern Ireland's place in the UK. That's probably right, isn't it? They're not going to get a better deal than this. No, they're, they're not. I didn't think the EU was going to make these types of concessions. You know, a lot of people thought it was impossible. And it just goes to show that really all it was required was to have a British Prime Minister that wasn't going to win with the, the attitude of Boris Johnson. Um, though I was reading yesterday, apparently it started with Liz Truss, which is very surprising considering the damage that she did. Um, but yeah, they, they need to take this deal, though, to be fair to Geoffrey Donaldson, just with, with, with my pundit hat on, you know, the, the polls suggest that the majority of unionists have backed his strategy so far. And for those that follow the TV line, and I think there's still a significant number that do, maybe not a majority, but that want to follow the TV line, if he's going to follow what Jim Allister does, he's not going to take this deal. Um, we saw before that the DP's poll ratings went down previously when the TV was really ramping up this rhetoric. So it's a really interesting moment for unionism at this point in time. And short term, it might benefit them, but long term, you know, the the DUP love devolution. I think they know, people in that party know that if they, the Assembly crashes, you know, they have a lot to lose out on, really. And I think it was a writer in the Irish News, it might have been the editor of the Irish News, had said, you know, nationalism doesn't need Stormont as much as unionism does. Pat from Dublin, what's the read on the state of play now in terms of how this is likely to play out in Northern Ireland? Yeah, I think people in Dublin would be very interested um, in what Sarah was just saying. Uh, it would uh, accord with my my own view of it and, and certainly the view of, of, of people in and around government that I've been speaking to about this. It's a really big call for uh, Geoffrey Donaldson, for unionism as a whole, not just for, for the DUP. And it's important, 
I think, always to realise, as Sarah points out, that the DUP is only part of unionism. Obviously, it's the most politically important part of unionism and it's hard to overstate the importance of the decision that, or the role that Geoffrey Donaldson uh, will play in this now because unionism hasn't always been kind to the leaders that sought, uh, you know, to, to bring it to a path of accommodation with, um, uh, you know, with, with perhaps with, with, with reality, but certainly with the, uh, what, what Charles Haye used to call the totality of relations in, uh, in these islands. I think in Dublin, um, you know, Dublin has always been just as concerned with the with reviving the institutions as it has been with the threat to the the single market uh, that that the EU perceived from you know the open border between uh, the North and the rest of of the UK. So, the restoration of the institutions is a really important goal for. Um, uh, for for Dublin, I think they view the continuing absence of the institutions as destabilizing and polarizing uh, within uh, within the north, and obviously that's something that concerns uh, people in Dublin. But they're also, I think, acutely aware of the fact that wading into the discussion that is going on now and will be going on for at least some weeks within unionism could well be counterproductive. There's no, no doubt, of course, that they want the DUP to accept this deal and work uh, the institutions. But maybe the way to push the DUP towards doing that is not to have Dublin uh, shouting about what a great deal it is and how unionists would be mad to reject it. And interestingly, in the Dáil yesterday, Mary Lou Macdonald made a number of attempts to get the Taoiseach to say, uh, to tell the DUP to cop itself on and, uh, and, uh, and accept the deal. And he declined to do so on each occasion, saying instead that DUP wished to consult. It'll take some time to make its mind up and uh, they deserve the time and space to do that. Um, so there is a view, of course, in, in, in Dublin, as we report today, that, you know, irrespective of what the DUP decides to do, this is the deal and it will be uh, and it will be implemented. But obviously, uh, it is vastly preferable uh, from Dublin's point of view that, uh, that 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 the DUP should accept it. When all these agreements happen, there always seems to be a new piece of jargon that, that emerges. Uh, the, the new one this time is the Stormont Break. We're going to take a break ourselves first, but uh, when we come back, we'll be Death talking about the Stormont Death. Break. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And welcome back, everyone. I promised you a discussion of the storm and break and a discussion of the storm and break we shall have because, Mark, the, the thing about this is that's... The, the only real element of surprise in this agreement, isn't it? Everything else is it's as good as could have been expected, perhaps, in terms of the amelioration of the of the the, the hindrances to trade across the across the sea between Northern Ireland and the UK. But the green and the red channel, all those kind of things had been flagged already. The storm and break kind of came out of left field. Maybe you could explain what it is. Yeah, the storm and break effectively is based on a provision of the Good Friday Agreement called a petition of concern. Um, and what it means effectively is that 30 MLAs from two different parties, if they believe that an application of EU law uh, is going to have a negative impact on Northern Ireland. If you can get 30 signatures from two different parties um, and you go to the British government um, and you say, look, we have this concern, and the British government then is the is the entity that pulls the brake, so to speak. So the, 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 the British government pulls the brake, uh, it goes to the European Union, it says we've got a problem here, the law is disapplied, and then it goes to a kind of a joint committee um, and, 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 and they suss it out between them. Now, there are criteria around it to try and prevent this from being um, abused as a mechanism, I suppose, um, by, uh, by certain parties in the Northern Ireland Assembly. But effectively what it does and what it's designed to do um, is to address what's become colloquially known, um, um, certainly over here in London, as the democratic deficit. And this is the notion that laws from the European Union could be imposed upon Northern Ireland and its people and its politicians there could have absolutely no say in this whatsoever. Um, and look, it's a valid point. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, to be a, a law taker rather than a lawmaker is something that really must stick in the craw of a lot of politicians, especially politicians in the North. Um, so this provision, this is the one provision that wasn't really trailed. There was no, it wasn't leaked at all. And it was pulled as the rabbit out of a hat and it got everybody talking on the day. And I suppose the thinking behind not trailing it and not um, not leaking it beforehand was that was that very reason. So that on the day, it would be the one thing that everybody would talk about. Because I think Rishi Sunak and his government hope that this is the one thing that will get the DUP over the line. Um, so look, it's, uh, uh, the, I, I think it's probably had the desired effect over here. I mean, if you were asking me to make some sort of prediction, I think there's absolutely um, 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 no other possibility other than this entire deal, the Windsor Framework, will be passed by a vote in the House of Commons, no matter what the DUP says or does. It'll be passed over here and the pressure will then return back onto that party. Um, at the moment, it's, it's, it's very, very clear over here that um, politicians of all stripes and hues are sort of tiptoeing around the DUP in the way you'd sort of tiptoe around a guard dog that you don't want to bark. Um, and, and, and there's this sense that, um, you know, people that you would have expected to sort of mount a rebellion against what Rishi Sunak has done here, it, it just hasn't materialised. I mean, David Frost, for example, who was Boris Johnson's negotiator, he came out this morning and he basically said, look, this thing is going to pass. Um, 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 Rishi Sunak on Tuesday night went into a meeting of the 1922 committee, which is the, the meeting of, of backbench Tory MPs, where in the past over Brexit, I mean, all of his predecessors have gotten a rough ride in those committee meetings about Brexit. Um, and he was, it was like a birthday party for him. He was effectively clapped out of the room. Um, so there's been a huge welcome um, um, in London amongst politicians of all stripes and hues for this deal. Um, Labour, by the way, have already have said all along that they would vote for it if it went to a vote anyway. Um, so it's got a pass over here in London. It really is. So again, it just throws the spotlight back onto the DUP. 
And I presume, Sarah, that the DUP will have its finest minds and its legal advisors pouring over the, the, the small print of the text. It, it does seem to me, and tell me if I'm wrong, that the storm and break will be the bit that they'll be pouring over the most. I've seen various analyses of it over the last uh, day and a half or so. Uh, quite a few of them suggesting, actually, that it would be very hard to activate because of the provisions which Mark mentions around it, hedging against it being misused and just being an opportunity um, for for 30 MLAs to, to block things just for the sake of, of blocking them. Of course, you know, ornamental pieces of legislation can end up becoming actual pieces of legislation, depending how they're used over the, the years with the change in the political landscape. Is it taken seriously as a concession among unionists in Northern Ireland? I would say so, yeah. I would say the storm and break and the ECJ even though it's it's quite obvious from the bits that I've read that the ECJ just that they're going to be the arbitrator of EU law. I don't think there's been many concessions in that. I really didn't expect the EU to move on that. But yes, the the, the storm and break is going to be the big one because um, this was an issue where where I do think the DUP and other unionists are right. You know, there is a democratic deficit. It is uncomfortable that it didn't sit well with me that the protocol was there and there wasn't a lot of room for the Assembly to vote on it other than to affirm the entire agreement. The argument, of course, is that the protocol is an amendment to uh, to Brexit, which uh, the people of Northern Ireland didn't didn't get their way on that either. No, we didn't get away on that, but it was a UK-wide vote. You know, it was going to happen one way. You know, I voted Remain, but you know, the, the problem for me was that the type of Brexit they chose. You know, we could have stayed in the single market and the custom union. You know, it would have been fine. <laughs> I will say this until the day I die, but it didn't happen. Um, but yeah, the storm break is going to be the big one because um, it, it obviously it's interesting that the DUP can't do and can't do this on their own. They would need other unionist MLAs, possibly some independents, possibly some also unionists to do this because they don't have have the thirty MLAs anymore that they used to to put this on. Um, I think it's notable that obviously the, a lot relies with the UK government, <laughs> who you know a very small percentage of people in, in Northern Ireland trust, including many unionists. Um, so really, it's up to the UK government. You know, you have to ask the question, are they going to take it seriously um, if this is actually raised? And yes, as you say, um, the conditions, you know, I think there was a professor from Cambridge who came out and said that she didn't think it was going to be used very often because it has to be, it can't be trivial. It has to be used if there's going to be significant impact on people's lives. I mean, the rules are quite strict. They need, it need yeah. there needs to be consultation with local business. So there's, mm-hmm. a, there, there's a set of, of of hoops that need to be jumped through before it can be exercised at all. Yeah, absolutely. What you think is to stop chaos, really. Um, so, you know, hopefully it won't be used very often. But if something does come in that really does require some petition, some concern to be raised with the UK government, it will be used and will be used effectively because, you know, I do get concerned about about how the protocol lasts in the long term, really. Um, but that will be what is what will be um, looked over because I think that is possibly what the DUP could sell to its base, to its supporters and say, look, we've got some control here. And, you know, if if I was a DUP strategist, you know, what you would be doing is is going back to your supporters and saying, look, we got all these concessions. It was us that got this and then right back to storm it on your victory horse. Um, go into the assembly for a couple of years and, and see how it goes. You know, by that time, the time the next election rocks around, there'll be something else. But, you know, I'm a very different type of unionist to the DUP. <laughs> so, you know, I, I really hope that they look at this and see that it's a good thing. And in, in terms of that then, I mean, given the tensions within the party, which you mentioned, and, you know, a couple of the MPs came out very quickly, I think, without having read it at all, uh, and and said they were opposed to it, you know, Ian Paisley and Sammy Wilson, probably to nobody's surprise. Is Jeffrey Donaldson, if you were to hazard a guess that Jeffrey Donaldson ultimately wants to bring the DUP back into the, the Assembly, is he in control enough of his own party to be able to do that? Or might you end up with some kind of internal split or confrontation of some sort? Um, it's it's hard to say 
to be honest, um, what position he's in, though, it's obvious that there is there is a split down the party and he's got to manage that. There's also people outside the party shouting in. Uh, we all know who they are. <laughs> um, and they've developed very close relationships with these people. And um, I would imagine they're probably going to try and get them on side um, so they can manage them going forward. So, you know, if, if he doesn't, if he if he does take this deal, there's going to be a lot of management of these outside forces, forces within the party. Um, obviously, the DUP will be mindful of history, where they managed to outflank the Ulster Unionist Party by by pulling a move, um, where they were the the part, Ulster Unionist Party did something and that split the party and it caused chaos for them for many, many years. So Jeffrey Donaldson will have his eyes on history. The fact that there's elections upcoming in the in the late spring, will that be on his mind as, as part of the, I, I the timetable for this? Yeah, and we've got the locals as well in May. So so the local elections, I, I imagine he will he will be looking at that as well. And obviously if the local elections don't don't prove successful, the DUP just say they accept this deal and their vote goes down, you know, that that's gonna aggravate party members, particularly party members that maybe think they should reject the deal. But equally, you know, if, if they go into the locals and actually there's this indication that the public is happy with the decision they've made, great. But, uh, you know, they, they have to, I don't see them preparing their base for a climb down and they really have backed themselves into a corner over the past couple of months. And for some people, nothing less than the full removal removal of that protocol is acceptable. And that's on the DUP. That's their fault if, if they've managed to get themselves into that position. Pat, on many occasions we have sat in this studio and discussed on this podcast the way in which government officials in Dublin um, privately, and sometimes not entirely privately, have been pulling out their hair at the sheer insanity of what was going on under successive administrations in London for the last five, six, seven years maybe even. Is there a feeling in Dublin that there's been a um, an outbreak of sanity at last over there? Big time, yeah. And I think that's not recognised just in Dublin. It's also the key behind the change in Brussels. I mean, Brussels has made some very significant concessions here. They aren't concessions that uh, Brussels was willing to make to previous British prime ministers, but they're um, partly because of presumably what British officials and the prime minister were saying in private to uh, uh, to to the EU side, but also because of the public signals that were made uh, by Rishi Sunak since he came to number ten, uh, there has been a growth of trust between uh, between the two sides, and um, uh, and I think that kind of transform has transformed the atmosphere in which a deal uh, became possible because. You know, it was always open to the EU to simply wait out this uh, this British government until an election takes place in whatever it is, 12, 18 months' time, maybe two years, and deal with the next, hopefully, from the EU's point of view, more reasonable British administration. But they haven't. They've chosen to do the deal uh, with Rishi Sunak, and that means that they um, uh, that means that there is some degree of, uh, of of trust there. Part of that, of course, that trust is built on the fact that Sunak has clearly, I think, uh, given them assurances that this is the deal he will push it through, irrespective of what the DUP says. To go back to what Sarah was saying, from from my point of view, trying to analyse it from outside, it, it seems to me to be a no brainer for the DUP to claim victory on this to say, okay, we haven't got 100% of what we wanted, but we, you know, this is a negotiation. You don't get 100% of what you want in any uh, deal-making business. We've got nearly everything we want and we're not going to get uh, a better deal. That is not the history of the DUP. That is true. And I'm not looking at it from the point of view, uh, you know, of somebody in in the unionist uh, tradition. And I think it's going to be really interesting, not, you know, could be very important, obviously, but also from 
political point of view, very interesting to see how Jeffrey Donaldson deals with this over the next few weeks. And if he does decide to to back the deal, uh, how does he manage the naysayers on his um, uh, on on in in his party and around his party? If he decides to not to accept the deal, how does he then articulate a political future for unionism? So, um, I, you know, as we said at the start, I think it's a huge call facing him. It'll be very interesting to watch. Uh, Jeffrey Donaldson isn't the only person leading a divided party. Mark Rishi Sunak's Conservative Party has been notoriously divided for years in all kinds of different directions. One of the things that really surprised me over the last few days, as you said earlier, was uh, the limited amount of objections to uh, to the agreement announced on Monday. And many commentators have observed that in the process of agreeing and announcing this deal, uh, Rishi Sunak has perhaps, you know, finally put a stake through the heart of the cadaver of the prospect of the return of Boris Johnson as a political force in the Tory party. Do you think that's true? Uh, look, he certainly got one over on him. Um, I mean, Boris Johnson, and uh, there was always this threat, this spectre of Boris Johnson hanging behind this deal that perhaps that if he if he was to stick his oar in and oppose it, that whatever rebellion did emerge would would was suddenly you know double or treble or quadruple. Um, Boris Johnson was on Sky News just last week. He gave an interview um, where he effectively said that the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, a very very controversial piece of legislation that's currently mired in the House of Lords that would give the British the power to unilaterally disapply aspects of the protocol. Um, and it really, really angered people in Brussels. Um, and and it, I suppose it was the gun on the table in the negotiations that, that Boris Johnson basically said that this should be you know, they, they should keep going with this. And and as part of the whole negotiations for the Windsor framework, Rishi Sunak is removing the gun of that piece of legislation from, from the table. He's taking it away. Um, so look, um, yeah, Rishi Sunak has gotten one over on Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson, perhaps of all politicians, is very, very good at uh, at looking at which way the wind is blowing and, and, and making his decisions accordingly. And he can probably see that if he was to make some sort of an intervention here and try and rebel, that he'd be rebelling with you know, 10 or 12 or 15 MPs behind them. That's not a rebellion. I mean, that's a squeak in the night. Um, so Boris Johnson, I think, maybe will bide his time um, and uh, and look for another opportunity um, to come in and make trouble for Rishi Sunak. And he will. I mean, Boris Johnson still has his, his supporters in the party. I mean, you know, there are still people who will say hand on heart that um, when Liz Truss stepped down, that Boris Johnson had enough support at the time um, um, to mount his own leadership campaign and for some reason chose not to. I mean, look, you can believe who you want there. Maybe he did and maybe he didn't. But um, um, he certainly still has his eye on Rishi Sunak. There's definitely no love lost between them. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think he'll, uh, he'll find some other reason to intervene at some stage again in the future. There were unconfirmed reports on, on Monday, Sarah, that Boris Johnson had been speaking through back channels to the DUP and, uh, and urging them not to rush into agreeing to the agreement, which would be a pretty traitorous thing to do for a, um, for a member of the, of the Conservative Party. Do you think that's possibly true? Um, and if it does, I mean, it, uh, I can't get my head around the nature of what seems to be like a sort of a, a recurring abusive relationship between the DUP and certain elements of the Conservative Party. Well, I could scream every time I hear that Boris Johnson and the DUP have been talking. I'm like, lad, stop answering your phone. This guy's not your friend. It's like it's like when your friend is dating a guy that is really bad for them and they just keep going back to them no matter how many times you tell them it's bad. <laughs> that is the DUP and Boris Johnson and the Tory party in general. I think, um, you know, it, Boris Johnson, you know, a period of quiet from him would be much appreciated. You know, the, the, the word I, I'd use for Boris Johnson is slake it, which is a, an Ulster Scots word for a liar, basically. 
Um, he just, you know, I think Rishi Sunak has blown him out of the water with this deal. It's quite clear that nobody in the party really expected it to be what it is. Um, and every time Boris Johnson pops up, there's chaos. You know, he he just wants to disrupt everything, and it's for his own ego. It's for his own political ambitions. Um, you know, the Tory party have caused you know tremendous tremendous damage to the union under the, under the UK just in general. It, so yeah, I, I would like to not see Boris Johnson ever again, really in short. And I really hope the DP is not listening to him because he does not have their best intentions nor the best intentions of Northern Ireland in mind. And more broadly, it's been the relationship between the DUP and the, the right wing, the Brexiteer wing of the Conservative Party that has actually put the union in peril, isn't it? As Fintan O'Toole pointed out in a, in a column in the Irish Times earlier this week. And and it's the relationship in particular between the, the DUP and the European Research Group, the Brexiteer wing of the Tories over the last few years that has kind of driven the dynamic that we've seen. And that seems now to be broken or certainly not remotely as strong as it used to be. That must have some effect on the deliberations in Belfast now. I would say so, you know, when, when there was talk that the ERG were, were going to rebel, that Rishi Sunak was maybe facing up to 100 MPs and Boris Johnson was starting to speak up, I thought, well, you know, some of the DUP will be once again saying, look, if we hedge our bets to these lot, we'll get what we want eventually. And if that rebellion has died down, they may now be of the view that actually there's nowhere else to go, that they don't have that avenue anymore. So it's basically take this deal and that's it. And they may not get another another chance. You know, Ian Paisley was on saying they need to go back into negotiations again. It's just, it's not going to happen, Ian. Um, so I, I suspected that will have an impact, you know, before they would have maybe gone for it, I think, and gone with the ERG. Um, they've done tremendous damage to the union. I mean, the Tory party has damaged the union since the 1980s, in my view. I could rant about it for hours. So I sincerely hope that that focuses minds, that they maybe don't have that avenue. A last point to you then, Mark. This deal obviously needs to be ratified by both sides. We should say that you know, we have some reports in the paper today saying that there are a couple of eyebrows raised in Europe at some of the provisions, how um, how lenient they are, I suppose, as compares in comparison with trade agreements with other non non EU countries. But setting that aside for the moment, in in Westminster, there doesn't have to be a vote in this, does there? But there will be one, and do we have any idea when that might happen? Well, there will be a vote, and they've committed to giving a vote. They haven't committed to a timescale. The sort of a spokesman for number 10 said yesterday that, look, they basically did the reason why they weren't committing to a timescale in the vote is because they didn't want to set a, you know, an effective deadline for the DUP. And um, it's all part of this giving the DUP, you know, the time and the space to consider the deal. There will be a vote. It will pass. It's absolutely um, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that it will pass because even if there was a Tory rebellion, it'll pass with Labour votes. Now, I mean, look, obviously, um, um, Rishi Sunak doesn't want to pass something with Labour votes. It'll make him look um, like a weak prime minister. Um, but I think he now looks like a stronger prime minister now than he certainly did last week. Um, and uh, and there's no Tory rebellion. It'll pass with Tory votes alone, I'm sure. Um, um, even even David Frost seemed to acknowledge that this morning, writing in the Telegraph. Um, so look, I think you could probably expect a vote in a couple of weeks. Um, um, I mean, look, how long do you have to give the DUP? How much time and space do you have to give the party? Um, eventually, the British body politic and the Westminster body politic, it wants to move on. There is a sense in Britain that they want to move on. They want to move on to the Tory party's, you know, their five promises um, that he's made the election, the five big issues um, 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 and and. The, the protocol and, and, and making an agreement with Europe with the Windsor framework, it gives them the space to do that. I mean, one of the big domestic priorities here is is, is immigration and the small boats. Um, and they need to do a deal with France to really stop that. So, I mean, are France going to do a deal with them if they don't, if they walk away from the Windsor framework? The thing is going to pass. It'll pass over here. And I think everybody in London um, will be glad to close that chapter. 
And then a last question to you, Sarah. Same kind of question, really. I mean, what is the timescale? Everybody's playing it very softly, softly. No pressure on the DUP. Give them time to consider and, and, you know, do whatever they need to do. But there has to be some kind of a timetable or a clock ticking on this, doesn't there? I, I would say so. I mean, people aren't going to wait for months. I'd seen somebody, somebody had, had I can't remember who it was, had said, you know, maybe they'll wait until the local elections, which are May. I mean, that that's that's too long. Um, Northern Ireland doesn't have that long. I mean, because, I mean, we need to remind ourselves that the health service in Northern Ireland, I mean, is in absolute tatters. You know, there's so much legislation that's being held up. Um, people are desperate for government. Things really are very, very dire with the cost of living crisis. You know, we really need government back. So, I would say maybe a couple of weeks at most, I would say that they will be given before somebody says, right, lads, make a decision. Um, They can't drag this out any longer. Um, I saw Doug Beatty had said he hoped they could make the decision within a week. So we will see. Um, I I think there's probably a lot of talking going on amongst the party and outside the party to see how they can coordinate this if they are going to accept it. Um, But I don't think they need any longer than a couple of weeks. And that's long enough, in my opinion. opinion, I think they should be able to take it now. (laughs) Right, so we'll be returning to that subject, no doubt, over the over the next couple of weeks then as well. As well, we'll be continuing to cover it in the Irish Times and on irishtimes.com. We will leave it there for today, though. Thanks very much to Sarah, to Mark and to Pat for joining us. The podcast is produced by Declan Conlon. It's engineered by JJ Vernon. We're going to be back with you in a couple of days' time. But until then, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.